0: If the law is good, then why are there so many questions about it, not to mention controversies? The 2024 Pactum Conference will offer clear biblical answers and wise guidance to believers seeking to understand the divine law and how it applies to life in the 21st century.
1: 2024 Pactum Conference, is that what you just said?
0: 2024 Pactum Conference, it's already scheduled, already being promoted. It's on the books. October 11th and 12th, and it will
1: be called God's Good law god's good law october 11th and 12th in omaha nebraska who's speaking who's speaking we got jv fesco coming we have dave van drunen we have mike abendroth and pat abendroth i cannot it's gonna be it is gonna be awesome awesome.
0: two two of my oh i have to say three because it's my brother three 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 of my favorite authors (laughs) No, it's going to be a great lineup. We're going to do the Friday night, Saturday morning, like we've done in the past, but it's going to be on the 11th and 12th of October, 2024. And we're also going to do a special luncheon and a couple of seminars for pastors uh, during the lunch hour on Friday, October 11th. So if you're a pastor and you're coming, come a little bit early for some good grub, but also for some uh, good times together. I think we're going to do something on preaching and sharpening your preaching skills uh, with my brother as well as some other things so yeah. should be awesome
1: yes Mark pretty your much calendars can't yeah, Save the dates. Pretty it's much awesome. can't
0: wait. Topics will include the law gospel paradigm. Hello, it's a Pactum event. You wouldn't uh, believe it. Yeah. Guess who's going to speak on that one? I don't so know. we're going to have natural law. Dave Andren has a new book on natural law. We're going to talk about the three uses of the law, covenant theology and the law, legalism and antinomianism and the law. Who knows, Mike? We might just get crazy and even talk about, well, you know, theonomy the- okay. and the law. Oh, hey. It is going to be a thing. It's going to be great. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So and keep
1: your eyes out for more information, more details. We'll let you know when registration opens up. It's going to be awesome.
0: Indeed. Well, speaking of conferences, today we are going to run episode 146, which is the last thing we're going to run yes. from the 2023 Pactum Conference, Yes, it is. All Things New. And this is a discussion uh, on the new creation and things related to the new creation, already not yet, uh, all kinds of things that we talked about during the conference. And it's a discussion with Michael Beck, Mike Abendruth, and myself
1: yes so enjoy this Q&A discussion from the conference
0: well the first thing is a fun fact over the weekend I was told that we we consume we were well caffeinated we consumed 2,112 cups of coffee so great job for being stimulated praise the Lord we're not Mormons So, (laughs) or everyone would have been sleeping. We would have had decaffeinated coffee or something like that. So with that in mind, I do have Mike Abendroth and Michael Beck up here. Uh, Mike Abendroth is from Massachusetts where he pastors. He's also an author and also uh, the host of No Compromise Radio, getting close to 4,000 episodes. What do you do in your free time? (laughs) (laughs) And Michael Beck comes to us from New Zealand, where he pastors as well. He's also an author, and he hosts a podcast called Two Age Sojourner. And so I'm thankful for both of their ministries. Uh, Since you all are here and uh, probably are willing to pray for them, maybe we could ask each of you to offer a prayer request. So how can these folks here... Be praying for you, Michael Beck. You got a microphone right there. How can they be praying for you in the days ahead as you seek to pastor, to be a dad, a husband, churchman, professor?
2: You nailed it. That's exactly what they need to be praying for. Uh, thank you. That would be amazing if you would pray for me because um, it's busy. It's very, very busy. I think that's the that's the big thing we're facing right now. We just um, obviously posturing full time. Uh, the church is right in the heart of the city. A lot going on. Lots of I have five elders, which is great, and I really lean on them, and they help out. And it's you know, it's, it's I'm very thankful for the team, um, and they release me to do a lot, but it kind of creates another thing in that um, I'm, I'm sort of lecturing throughout the week, and then you know we got all these events moving through the year. And um, and then we've just had twins, so that's a thing on its own. Um, and they're they're five months now, and so we got five kids. And then we've also just to kind of throw us over the edge, we've had my parents come over from from South Africa from South Africa originally to live with us. Um, in their retirement years not not in our house but you know, on our property we've sort of organized them a little flat there and, and so they're loving it and everything's great and it's all harmonious and, and, and good but it's busy and so this is by far the busiest I've ever been in my life I'm just hoping to sustain the pace well and, and not burn out so any prayer in that regard would be amazing thank you
0: Mike
3: Beck always has to use the I have twins thing
2: I do though <laughs> I have, have
3: twins. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I hate to be self-serving on this because normally if people ask, you know, how can we pray for you? And might think about wisdom, right? Solomon asked for wisdom next week I have my final blood test uh, before I start treatment for leukemia. And so that starts in a week after that. And so I don't know what will happen. I'll try to preach. I'll try to do what I need to do. Uh, but in a selfish respect, but maybe for my wife's sake and children, if you wouldn't mind praying for me, that'd be great.
0: Awesome. Michael Beck, tell us about Wellington, New Zealand, so we can get an image of what that's like and doing ministry there.
2: Uh, Wellington is, it's the capital of New Zealand. So if you know the two islands, it's right in the middle on the bottom of of the North Island. Um, It's got a, a population, it's quite a small city, it's about you know, Three hundred thousand, I think, was the last time. Maybe not even. So not not a high population, but it's it's really it is a little hub, and it, there's a lot of action there. It's kind of the political center, and all the students, and a lot of a lot of arts, and you know uh, a lot of restaurants, and very sort of a, you know it tends to be where all the hipster action happens as well, and all the progressive stuff, and a lot of rioting. And so, out, you know, again, our, our church venue is right in the heart of all of that. And, and you do feel that. Uh, it, it feels much more normal being in other parts of New Zealand. And Wellington is, is known as this kind of hub of action. And um, and so, it, it's, it's good. It's a great place to live. It's beautiful. It you know the winters can be a little bit brutal, a lot of earthquakes. Uh, but other than that, you know, uh, it, it's really just this matter of it, it being the kind of uh, right in the f- on the front line of, of this aggressive secular uh, secularism and progressivism. And um, and so you know you feel that in ministry, uh, a, a, almost anything that you can say that's not amenable is considered hate speech. And and so we we don't keep signs outside of our church because that's going to. You know, target all sorts of things and and um, bring bring all sorts of trouble um, and you know more we could say about that. But but yeah, it's just a, it's getting worse and worse and worse. And as more laws get passed, it'll get more and more difficult to to just preach the gospel uh, as we do now and put our sermons online and whatnot. Um, so yeah, it's it's an interesting place to do ministry. Not a lot of nominal. I should say as well, not a lot of nominalism. Uh, you know, if Christians. If if they come to church, they're in, you know. So we tend to have smaller churches, but fully committed. They're a pleasure to pastor, um, and, and you, you can do a lot because everyone's you know just completely bought in. You don't get any social points for being a Christian in New Zealand, so you you know everyone who's there is is there for the right reason.
0: Mike said on another occasion, Wellington is like Portland and San Francisco had a baby.
2: Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's how it looks anyway. <laughs>
3: I just think it was cool when he said, it's kind of a hipster
0: place, riots. (laughs) Hipster riots, they go together. Skinny jeans riots. (laughs) Okay, so let's shift gears a little bit and talk about theology. Um, So over the weekend, we've been focusing on the new creation. We've been focusing on things like already, not yet. And Mike, you talked about the myth or you changed it because that's what older brothers do. Uh, the title was supposed to be The Myth of Final Justification, and he turned it into The Lie of Final Justification, and, which made me happy, because that's what younger brothers do. They're encouraged by older brothers, but I digress. So, James chapter 2 would be an objection. So, as Mike's finding that passage... Um, is that in the New Testament? It is. It is. And so, Mike was boldly emphasizing Romans chapter 8, Romans chapter 5, other such texts, uh, that we are justified, declared righteous uh, by grace alone, through faith alone, on account of Christ alone, uh, court of law kind of thing. It's legal. It's forensic. And that future day of judgment, we already know because we're justified by faith in the finished work of Christ. Nothing left to be done. What about James 2? People say, well, actually, James 2 contradicts that, or you need to add some works because of James 2. Give us a good response, and then Mike and I will chime in and give our views if necessary. Okay, perfect.
3: Quickly, when you turn to the book of James, here's what you should be thinking. This is probably the first book in the New Testament that was written, but the events of Jesus have already occurred right? Jesus around 30 AD, public ministry, 33 dies. Uh, and, and now 12 later, years later, 15 years later, you have the first book that you can actually read. And so if the gospels of Jesus are about Jesus and his good news and his person, it's not surprising that the first book that's given to us in scripturated is full of all kinds of commands because we know who Jesus is, gospel, and now we need law to guide us. So there's 104 verses with 52 imperatives in James and nothing about the death, burial, and resurrection because the death, burial, and resurrection has been talked about on earth. We don't have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John yet, but you come to James thinking it's chock full of imperatives, of course, because we need law to guide us. And since Jesus is raised from the dead, count it all joy. Since you don't have to earn your salvation, but you do it out of gratitude, be doers of the word. And that's how you read the book of James. So we come to James chapter 2, and if we just pick it up in verse 14, what good is it, my brothers, if someone, literally the Greek is, continually says he has faith, but continually does not have works, that faith can't save him. And he gives a little illustration like James does, learn from Jesus to do that. Verse 18 But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Now look at the language here of the show me and see and show. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? And he goes on to say a few more things. Can you see what he is trying to show you? How do you know I'm a Christian? Well, you only know I'm a Christian because if you see my works, right? God knows if I'm a Christian or not. He's not contradicting Romans chapter 4. You're justified by faith alone. And we see even here, Genesis 15, that's when we know Abraham was a believer when God granted him faith get circumcised later. And so what James is trying to say is people have a false faith, that's true. But he's not trying to say you're justified by faith alone. He's trying to say what you see in someone would be a vindication. Did you know that's another word we sometimes use justification? You could translate it a vindication. And so good works, dear Christian, are a vindication of your saving faith. If you think about end times and the final judgment, You don't have another justification. But will you be vindicated? As Christians, the answer is yes. So just read this by you see, you say, you see, shown, and what we can see in people because we can't see their faith internally. We can see the evidence of their faith which vindicates their their profession.
2: Yeah, uh, just, uh, it's almost like different concerns as you pointed out there to Paul uh, when he's talking about justification by faith. The question is not, are you justified by faith? The question is, is your faith justified, vindicated? So I just like the way that that kind of, you know, has some parallel to it and it's easy to remember and, you know, that brings both words into play there. So, yeah.
0: It may also be helpful, I think it's R.C. Sproul that talks about this, that since it's I'll show you, you show me, it's on the horizontal level of justification. It's not on the vertical level of justification. So... In the court of public opinion, since it's legal talk, in the court of public opinion, just of justified, we're not talking about in the court of the, the divine judge, which would be a different kind of animal altogether. So apples and oranges in one sense, not a contradiction at all. So,
3: I heard a professor once say, it's like James and Paul are fighting two different enemies And they're standing back to back. And they both have a sword. And Paul is fighting, do you think you can get saved by religious works or any other works? No, it's by faith alone because it's the Lord Jesus who does it. And then there's a a faith that's not alone, right? You're justified by faith alone, category one justification. But that faith won't be alone, category of holy living. And so Paul is facing this enemy. James is facing that enemy. They're on the same team, obviously, because we have a divine author.
0: Super Michael Beck, what is meant by the statement "Eschatology precedes Soteriology"? Yeah, great. And um, they're just getting the coffee going. <laughs> so explain the words even of
2: the right. question.
3: Um, Two thousand one hundred and ten cups.
2: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, all right, eschatology is the the uh, the doctrine of the last things. Is is kind of usually well, that's. Almost wrapped up in the word there, in terms of what's being said, the lagos about the eschatas, uh the the doctrine of the end, and uh, what Geertanus Vos, um, who's largely regarded as kind of the grandfather or father of biblical theology in the Reformed movement, um, he kind of rescued it from the liberals and 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 uh, put some some good dogmatics to it. But anyways, he came along and said. Uh, you know, we when we think about the doctrine of the end, we, we've got to be careful that we don't only start thinking about that after the fall. Um, and because, you know, let's be honest, that's kind of what we're normally prone to do. We're just we're just going to read the Bible, and then we're not even thinking about the end, then we see the fall happens, then we go and we get to the end, and then we're really thinking about the end when we get to the um, the book of Revelation. But... To really understand the Book of Revelation, you see um, uh, all these images of the beginning before the fall. You see the tree. You see all of these things in the garden. Uh, all of that stuff that really happens right in the beginning, and that's an important clue to to deepening our insight about what what the end is and what the fall is and what salvation is and all of these things that we care about. So he said. We have to understand that in these opening pages of Scripture, and certainly by the time you get to the Sabbath, and we'll, I'll say a little bit more about that in the sermon, but but uh, in the Sabbath is where you have the end in, in mind. Uh, the goal of history was put before man right in the very beginning, um, just just uh, as surely as man is made in the image of God, man is made in the image of God to dwell with God forever in all eternity. And that, that's the end. That's the, the glorious result that is again held forth in the book of Revelation, again with the tree of life, again, except all of that's now in terms of redemption because of what was lost in the fall. So it's just a helpful way to see the unity of the Bible and to see a deepened insight as to what, what it is that Jesus came to do. Super.
0: I think it's also just helpful to have a, you know, we called it a prophecy conference just to kind of get people's minds thinking, provocative kind of thing. But to have Mike Abendroth talk about justification at an eschatology conference, to many of us, doesn't make any sense. Right. But it needs to make a whole lot of sense because justification is an end times thing. But we're already experiencing it in the here and now.
2: Yet soteriology. Sorry, I forgot to explain that one. You know, uh, salvation, the doctrine of salvation. So, the, you know, that's it, justification, right? there. eschatology precedes even this idea of of thinking about justification. You won't get, you, what does it mean that we're justified? What does it mean that we're saved? You know, well, we first have to understand what, what the goal is uh, to see what was lost, to see what we have again. Super.
0: Either one of you, both of you, uh, Mike... Beck, you just mentioned, as if I could think straight right now, it's been a long weekend. (laughs) You just mentioned biblical theology. Uh So talk about, a lot of times we hear biblical theology, we think, oh, theology that is biblical as opposed to unbiblical. Mm -hmm. Uh, So let's talk about what biblical theology is, how it differs from systematic theology, why they're both important. How about both of you talk about that? Go ahead and start. Go ahead.
2: Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's a great point. Biblical theology. We do, You know, we're talking here about a specific discipline. Um, one of the most helpful ways I've heard it described. There was a guy named Abraham Kuyper, Dutch theologian. He he came up with this thing called the Encyclopedia of Theology, right? And it's kind of this way of of just getting your head around all these disciplines. Um, and I've just, i 've just ever since I read that I thought oh that 's helpful i 'm going to keep that um, but if you imagine sort of a four quadrant kind of diagram, uh, you would have systematic theology, which is you know the stuff we we read about the doctrine of creation, doctrine of God, doctrine of scripture, doctrine of salvation, etc so systematic theology, historical theology, so if you 're at the conference, daryl Hart historian looking at you know, historical figures and so forth. They have exegetical theology and then you have practical theology, right? Practical theology is like missions and, you know, just pastoral theology and some ethics and all that sort of stuff. And then in exegetical theology, which is concerned with the Bible... Um, concerned with, with the languages, concerned with exegesis and concerned with the way it all fits together into textual studies and textual criticism, all these sub-disciplines. That's where you find biblical theology. It's a, it's a way of doing exegesis. It's a, it's a way of doing hermeneutics, a way of, of interpreting the Bible according to the Bible. My favorite definition of biblical theology. I love it because it's so simple. I tell all the students, forget all these other ones, you know, just go with this one. This is the one I want on the test. It's just the Bible's theology of the Bible, right? It's just a great way to, before, we're not saying you shouldn't take into account all these other disciplines, but start with exegesis or at least consider what the Bible itself is saying about its own parts. And, um, and and that, I think, is, is a helpful way to think about it. Uh, the, the, there's all sorts of interesting discussions about, you know, what exactly is the difference between biblical theology and systematic theology. Well, I think before you get into nutting those out, the big point is to say they're not opposed to one another. Um, they're, they're, especially in the reformed tradition, they welcome each other. They, um, one of my favorite stories is Benjamin Warfield, right? He was a a systematic theologian. And Gerhardus Vass, uh, who of course was a great biblical theologian, and uh, apparently they used to walk uh, during the breaks around the campus arm in arm having long discussions with one another and uh just just hanging out and they became kind of a symbol of the friendship between these two disciplines and um and i think that's the way it ought to be the biblical theology will will give substance to your your doctrines otherwise you are just proof texting right and uh biblical theology needs the rest of it to to then move on and see how how the spirit has worked through the church to interpret the bible and uh provide a a collective wisdom in that sense. So yesterday, during your
0: sessions, they struck me as very much uh, driven by biblical theology, right? You were unpacking the storyline. Exactly, uh, yeah. The organic unity, development within the scripture. Uh, You didn't start with, whereas Mike's was more systematic. He started with a topic. Yes, The topic is justification. Yes. He was relying on the Bible, but he started with the the topic drove it. For you, it was the storyline, the narrative, the... Over time, redemptive historical stuff that was was driving it,
2: yeah, can I share a quick little illustration that 's helped me to get my head around that exact difference? Uh, well, I suppose they 're two, but anyway let, let 's try one. <laughs> oh, they are all coming to me now. I must remember these um, so you, you, you know imagine you were studying the human heart right uh, at one level you could i mean you, you could have a doctor that 's concerned with the way the human heart grows from the time in the, in, the, in the womb to just a young child to how the heart develops a little bit later to when it hits uh, full maturity to, you know, towards the later years. And you, it's an important area of study because there's going to be some major differences and you want to know how it all unfolds. Uh, that would be biblical theology. But then you get the systematician who does the heart surgery on a person of a certain age at that point. You know, so it's, it's almost a cross-section looking at that issue from that point. Same thing with uh, etymology or the study of words. You know, you, you can you can look at a word diachronically. You could say, well, this is how the word was used then and then it evolved and then it kind of took on this meaning and when we look at this meaning, be careful not to confuse it with the earlier meaning and we just keep going. Or you could just look at the dictionary which is, again, the systematic theologian. Just this is it, cross-section, this is what it means right now. So, again, both are studying the same thing. It's just a different approach. I, I find that super helpful. To, yeah.
3: In our world, probably Omaha Bible Church world, Bethlehem Bible Church world, we kind of come from a background where a pastor will go through the Bible verse by verse preaching and sometimes really slow down, right? I can't believe he preached four sermons on count it all, join my brethren when you counter various trials. And so what I like to do to help myself with biblical theology and that sweep and that flow and the organic nature of it, just read big sections of scripture, Read big sections of the Old Testament and you'll begin to see that flow and you'll begin to see words that are similar. And the same divine author, of course, is writing these things. And so in a very practical sense, if you read big swaths of scripture, you will be helped and augmented as you study certain topics. I like to sometimes get on my phone and uh, just have the ESV Bible just read, right? I, I drive to the airport and I think, I'm just going to listen to all of Mark 1 through 16 verse eight. Uh, <laughs> and just big swaths. That that helps. The other thing that helps, remember when you go to the grocery store at Easter and they have the peeps and you redeem the peeps with perfect, entire, exact, perpetual obedience. When you go to the grocery store and you go to the produce section and it says organic, I want you to be thinking about biblical theology, the sweep of things. Every time you see that word organic, because that's the word that Pats use and Mike's use for biblical theology, and again, biblical theology isn't the Bible's theology. It's this not point in time kind of theology, but this grand sweep of redemption from Orga- reject-
0: organic, natural development unfolding. There, there you go. Um, uh-huh. Okay, switching gears a little bit. Let's talk about mono Michael Beck will say mono-covenantalism, um, but we're praying for him, so. <laughs> Let's talk about monocovenantalism, what it is, why you don't want to catch it, um, and contrast it with a better view. I saw
3: them at the Omaha Civic Auditorium in 1978. They opened for KISS. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just
2: thinking. That's why Siri never understands me when I say monocovenantalism. <laughs> Sorry, could you please repeat? <laughs> monocovenantalism. Oh, man. All right, you go. So mono is one.
3: Covenant, right, is some kind of agreement or pact. There's different ways you could describe that. What we are teaching and what you kind of hear behind the scenes are two covenants. The covenant of works, do this and live, and the covenant of grace. If you blend the two together you get gospel. You get one covenant. It's a covenant of works and gospel. And so then all of a sudden, and grace, and you get one thing together. Say, well, how does that play itself out? I could ask questions like this. Before the fall, was there grace? That question determines whether you're a monocovenantalist or you're not. Because if you think there was grace before the fall, you're a monocovenantalist. Was there grace before the fall? What's, what's grace? If grace is unmerited favor, no, demerited favor. How could there be demerited favor before the fall? You say, well, God was gracious in giving the law. No, he was good in giving the law, kind in giving the law, but it wasn't gracious because grace is reserved for sinners and transgressors and lawbreakers. And so we believe before the fall, and we teach before the fall, there was a law. And as Michael said yesterday, there was a probationary period. And if Adam were to keep the law, uh, then there would be graduation to glory, I'm sure. It's all theoretical now, but Adam fell, of course. And then there needed to be a covenant of grace that started with Genesis 3.15. And so those that are mono-covenantalists, they just blend the two. Pat's got a book here. Daniel Fuller, he blends the two. Uh, John Piper blends the two. Other folks, uh, Bart blends the two. Uh, Oh, there's an endorsement there by John Piper. And so things get kind of squishy. And so lots of things happen if you're a monocovenantalist, including what I talked about yesterday. On that day when you die and stand before God, and then there's the final judgment. Will you make it? If you're a monocovenantalist, you'll kind of turn into almost Roman Catholic, where you have to cooperate with what Rome, you have to cooperate with God to get in we are teaching strictly covenant of works and covenant of grace and by the way jesus paid it all and god only accepts perfect works i mean there's nothing wrong with works but they better be perfect to stand before god so
0: there's just a couple comments so just and i want michael to talk about it but to go to your point because you explained james so nicely earlier so a mono is going to say you've got to take paul and take james and have them talking about the exact same thing and so you've got to have faith in christ plus your works and then if you do enough, God might accept you. That's, that, that would be a good example.
3: Totally. Romans 2.13 that I only alluded to yesterday. The doers of the law shall be justified. And we who believe in two covenants, the covenant of works and the covenant of grace, say to ourselves, he's just trying to show the people that they need the righteousness of God in Christ and that they can't do it. The covenant says, you know what? The doers of the law shall be justified. How are you doing? Are you doing enough to get in? Keep going. You need to blend those two things together, law and gospel.
2: Yeah, just to repeat some of that and and maybe just a slightly different spin. um, The big slogan... Of the, I'm gonna keep saying mono because it feels weird. I'm just like, uh, then I'm this traffic light and mono I mean, it's just gonna sound weird. I'm gonna sound American. I'm I'm not gonna do it. All right. And and he probably says fillet because he's from South Africa, not (laughs) filet. Siri would understand me, so it's tempting.
0: I think you say sir. What's sir mean?
3: Oh, so. It means so, that's right. (laughs) (laughs)
2: <laughs> Things went dark pretty quickly. <laughs> we got in the car yesterday, and he's
3: like, why are you so aggressive? <laughs> I said, well, if you want to know aggressive, just
2: look at my brother. Come on. I'm just glad that's water, and you, you just stop the coffee right now. You just, it's enough coffee for you. Um, so the... <laughs> You're ruining the whole thing. <laughs> uh, the big slogan is grace constitutes and law regulates. So in other words, uh, let's mush all the covenants together, right? One covenant, eternal, temporal, let's make them all one. From the beginning, let's, we don't want to talk about anything other than one covenant. And the big slogan is always going to be grace. There's always grace. Grace constitutes. That's, how could we have a covenant other than by grace is the idea. And, and you're always going to have law that regulates and that shows you the way to blessing. And if anyone ever turns away from the way of blessing, it's going to end up in uh, a way of cursing, right? So here you are in the garden and you're Adam and Eve and we know the story. That's not a, that's not a covenant of works. That's not a trial period. That's just God graciously giving a, a covenant relationship to them and calling them by the law to regulate their lives for blessing or for curse. You're explaining the monocovenantalist perspective. Exactly. Okay.
0: And we had people ready to come forward for an altar call. They thought that was, the, worry, right. We, we got thought guys,
2: was the right perspective. We got guys with guns. I'm cool. Don't <laughs> worry. <laughs> um, so, and then we move on in the story after the fall to see exactly the same thing. It's like the fall didn't even happen. Uh, God comes to Abraham and he says, I'm graciously entering into a relationship with you and you can either live obediently to blessing or disobediently to cursing. And then we go to Israel, and look, the same thing happens. God enters into a relationship, and you can either live obediently to blessing or disobediently to cursing, and they chose the latter. And then you get to the curse, uh, at least, sorry, to the new covenant, and now it's exactly the same thing. We're just like Adam in the garden. God comes to you and gives you a relationship and says, all right, what are you going to do, Christian? Are you going to live obediently to blessing or disobediently to cursing. So it's like there's no difference. Grace is not even on the table. It's not, It's like a different religion in that sense. It's, it's terrible. Yeah. So if you're looking
0: up in a Bible search, covenant of works and covenant of grace, you're not going to find either one of those. So just so you're aware, we're talking about theological ideas to summarize theological concepts from the Bible. So... Mike said, covenant of works, do this and live, you will find that statement from Jesus because he's asked how to gain eternal life. And in principle, it's true, do this and live. Obey the law, perfectly, personally, and perpetually. So we label that in theology a covenant of works kind of talk. Um, Covenant of grace, a right relationship with God only and always has ever come freely to sinners by grace. So there are concepts, there are ideas, just so you're aware of that if you're not tracking. It's almost shorthand, right? So if we want to say,
3: we say Arminianism, it just means a lot, right? It's a zip drive full and we're just unlocking that and it has all this information. And of course, we do that all the time, don't we? If I say Trinity, right? The Jehovah's Witnesses show up, they knock on the door and say, the word Trinity is not in the Bible. What do I always say? A, the word Bible is not in the Bible. And B, get (laughs) off my property.
0: (laughs) He is aggressive.
3: (laughs) No, I actually say, well, you know, I'm glad you're here to talk about spiritual things. Uh, Do you have any good news? And since they're monocovenantalists, they don't. And so they don't have good news. And they'll say, well, just try to be good and do this and do that. And and you'll make it in. And I'm like, you don't know how bad I am on the inside, how awful I am. I've tried all that. There's no hope. Well, just keep going. And then finally, I say, listen, let me tell you the good news. And then I preach the gospel to them. What does that have to do with anything? Oh, the word Trinity. There you go. Right? We use certain concepts like that to understand biblical doctrine that God's, the, you know, the Father's God, the Son is God, and the Spirit's God, and there's one God, three persons, et cetera.
0: So I'm going to read a Bible, Bible verse to you, uh, words from Jesus, and I want you to explain it to me in light of the fact, well, is, is it law or is it gospel? Is it covenant of works principle uh, or covenant of grace principle? Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment.
2: It's the works principle. Works principle. Is it true? Yeah, we, we, just a comment yeah. on that. We, we've recently started to confess the Athanasian confession at church, and um, it ends with that. And it really, you know, it drives it home. I don't know if you've read that recently, but, you know, this is what's going to happen. At the end, if you've, you know, there's this principle of works up in play. And it's so full on that people go, wait a minute, we don't know if we can say this stuff. But it's it's what's being said in the Bible the whole way through. There's this great judgment according to works. Everyone is going to get judged according to works. This is the bad news. This is the problem. And we need someone to work on our behalf. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. listen in a similar fashion to Revelation
3: chapter 20 and I saw the dead great and small standing before the throne and the books were opened then another book was opened which is the book of life and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done and the sea gave up the dead who were in it death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them and they were judged each one of them according to what they had done then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the fire. Did you catch what was going on there? There's two books. One book is for the unbelievers, and that book is full of deeds. Everything that person has ever done are not done. And there's another book. No deeds written in that book. Only names. Why? Because the deeds have been taken care of. All the sinful deeds have been taken care of by the Lord Jesus Christ. Two books. Deeds are names. And for you, dear Christian, you are written in the Lamb's book of life. And the only thing that's in there is not one of your sins that are going to be taken uh, to account on that great day, because Jesus paid it all. And for the unbeliever, every deed that they've ever done will be taken account. So aren't you glad that you're in the Lamb's book of life? Amen.
0: Don't be afraid of the law verses. The law is good, righteous, and holy. Uh, The covenant of works principle is all over the place, and it's wonderful because it reminds us of our need for credited righteousness that comes from Christ. I just read from John chapter 5, but if I keep reading and read the context... It's true, Jesus believes in judgment based upon works. But he also says in the same text, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. It's already not yet settled. And so you all are Bible readers. This is Omaha Bible Church. Um, Read your Bibles, but don't read them poorly. Um, Read them in context and, and see all over the place there's law. And the law is good, but it won't ever save you. Uh, You need to look to the law keeper, the Lord Jesus, uh, and that's good news to be received freely by faith. And once you see it, as we like to say, you can't unsee it and you can be great missionaries, helping lots of Christians even um, have assurance and give Christ glory for it.
3: Especially in this part of town, and this part of America uh, that I grew up in, this kind of thinking will really help you even with your evangelism. Because you know, dear Christian, there is assurance found in Christ Jesus. These things were written for you that you can really know. You have assurance. And it was Rome that took away assurance. It is a sin to have assurance in the Roman Catholic Church unless you're Mary or Paul. And Rome takes away assurance, and we try to give that to Christians. And so, if you ask your Catholic friends, "Do you know if you're going to go to heaven or not?" When they're really honest with you, the answer has to be no, according to the Roman Catholic doctrine. And what a great opportunity for then, for them, for you, for then you to talk about the Lord
0: Jesus and assurance. So we're getting close to wrapping up. So one thing we've not talked about on purpose this weekend uh, regarding eschatology, we've not talked about millennial views. And we're not going to now either. Let's close in prayer, no. <laughs> so <laughs> what I would like to, to hear from each of you uh, briefly would be what advice would you give if you were talking to someone who is just getting started exploring the views, what might they be looking
2: for as they're shopping for a view? Are we thinking millennial views particularly? Yeah, I would say stay away from all of that, uh, until you figured out the basics because that, you know, there, there's a, there's a principle in, you know, basic Bible study and interpretation that you always interpret the obscure by the clear. Never do it the other way around. That's what cults do. They take, they take a obscure verse and they, you know, they let that dominate over all the, all the clear verses. And there's a similar idea, I think, in theology in general, as you're putting everything together and trying to figure it out. Uh, there are some areas in theology that are just very you know, unsure and, and debated, and even amongst uh, groups of Christians that are otherwise on the same page on everything else. So that's got to be a, a, a sign to you that just hang on, wait, wait till the end to deal with that. Settle the clear things first. So ecclesiology is a lot clearer than eschatology if we're talking about millennial views. Um, you know, even further Christology and even further, you know, we can sort of work our way through it. Find out what those big ticket items are and look at those, get those cemented and so that you're sturdy and you actually believe them and that, you know, I always think of an anchor dragging along the sea, at a bottom, and then it grabs a rock, you know, and then it's just on. That's how you want to feel about these these doctrines. You know, don't, don't be just dragging around looking on sand. You want to find a good solid rock and then you can move on to the next thing. Um, and I would leave the millennial issue till uh, quite far down the track and you've got Got a lot of rocks holding you in place for that 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 storm uh, and that debate. Uh, I feel similarly about this um, matter of culture and so forth. Uh, you know, look at covenant theology rather than the culture debate. Um, and so, you know, I think that's a good piece of advice that'll keep you sane. Good, helpful.
3: There's a reason why the Reformed confessions don't talk about the millennial view. So which view they hold, post-mill, ah-mill, pre-mill. And if you read the Belgic Confession or you read Westminster or 1689, read the end time section and here's what you'll generally see. There's an end time section for you personally, dear Christian, what will happen, you'll get a new body, etc. So individual eschatology. And then there's the eschatology of the Lord Jesus. He's really gonna come back in a real body and he's gonna come to judge the living and the dead. And it leaves it there because those are the two most important things. I'd also like to say that if you study eschatology, it should help your holy living. I don't mean millennial views, but eschatology is ethical. Jesus is coming back soon. Let's not live holy lives so he accepts us, but let's live holy lives in light of what he's done for us. So people that study eschatology all the time, when people tell me, that's all I study, I think, I think you probably should be really holy. And I don't know how holy you really are, but uh, eschatology should drive us to be
0: kind and warm and everything else. Super, and it might be a good idea to determine whether or not you believe Jesus ascended. And if he ascended, what does that mean? And did he ascend to a throne? And did he sit at the right hand of the Father where he would rule and reign in righteousness that might help you with your millennial view?
2: I agree. Okay.
0: Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. Okay, 15 minutes before the service starts, and we need to up that number. What is it? 2,112 cups of coffee. Go enjoy some coffee, and uh, see you back here in just a little while.
1: Thanks for listening and being a part of the Pactumverse. You can find us online on Instagram and Twitter. You can be emailing us, connect at thepactum.org. We'll see you next week on The Pactum.